Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. Today I'm talking with Ian Proven about his book, Seriously Dangerous Religion, What the Old Testament Really Says and Why It Matters, published by Baylor University Press. Ian Proven has been the Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies at Regent College since 1997. He received his MA in Medieval History and Archaeology, from Glasgow University, his BA in Theology from London Bible College, and his PhD from Cambridge University, where his thesis focused on the Books of Kings and was subsequently published as Hezekiah and the Books of Kings. His academic teaching career took him to King's College London, the University of Wales, the University of Edinburgh, where he was a senior lecturer in Hebrew and Old Testament studies. Dr. Proven has written numerous essays and articles, and several books, including Commentaries on Lamentations, First and Second Kings, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. His book, A Biblical History of Israel, published by John Knox Press, is a widely adopted textbook. In today's program, we talk about his two most recent books, Convenient Myths, The Axial Age, Dark Green Religion, and the World That Never Was, and Seriously Dangerous Religion, What the Old Testament Really Says and Why It Matters, both published by Baylor University Press. Ian Proven, welcome to the show. Thank you, Garrett. Delighted to be on the show. I, I wonder if you begin by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and what, uh, you know, what led you to become a professor of biblical studies. Uh, sure. Um Well, I grew up in the UK. I was educated uh, in various parts of the UK. And um, I don't think I really ever had a desire in advance to be a biblical studies prof. But um, I had a very influential teacher at my undergraduate undergraduate school, a man called Donald Guthrie, who was a rather well-known British uh, New Testament scholar back in the day. Oh, yeah. And he really um, urged me to go and do doctoral studies, and it was he who suggested I do Old Testament studies in particular. And uh, so I think he is crucial to, to my story in that respect. Yes, he's, he's well known for his New Testament in- introduction, is that right? Yes, in fact, that was our textbook in New Testament studies in the first year class. Right, and what made his approach to the Bible uh, unique or different? Oh, it wasn't so much his uniqueness. It was just that I deeply respected him. And um, when he suggested this, I don't think I would have had the confidence uh, just to go and do such a thing. But because I really respected his judgment, um, I I began to pursue it, and it worked out. Um, It wasn't so much his style. It was more just the substance of the man. Oh, okay. And so what was the next step in in your studies? Well, um, of course, I, I went back to doctoral studies, 
Um, the only person I knew anywhere in the UK that was in the system was a man called Robert Gordon. Um, he had taught me Hebrew at the University of Glasgow, and he had moved to Cambridge by that point. So I went up and had lunch with Robert. He introduced me to Hugh Williamson, who became my supervisor, and it all really went on from there. Oh, okay. And um, and then uh, how did you, after university, how, what uh, what what happened after that? How did how did you gain uh, your current position? Um, well, this was back in the eighties. There weren't that many jobs in the UK, so I was a little bit um, anxious about you know what I would do. We had a young, we had our first child by then, but a temporary job came up at King's College London for two years, which I was very fortunate to get. And then there was a, another stopgap kind of year at the University of Wales on a fellowship there, postdoctoral fellowship. And then a permanent job came up at the University of Edinburgh. So um, I was there for eight years. And then Regent College telephoned me and asked me if I would be interested in coming to Vancouver. And ultimately, that's how I ended up in North America. Oh, okay. Um, well, I first became acquainted with your writing about 10 years ago after you published... Uh, your book called A Biblical History of Israel, which you co-offered with uh, Tremper Longman and Phillips Long. Um, and at the time, it struck me as a counterpoint to a lot of scholarship that minimized uh, the evidence, literary or otherwise, that's found in biblical literature and reconstructing the history and culture of ancient Israel. Can you talk a little bit about the context that that book um, you know, was written for and how, uh, what you attempted to address in that book? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, we conceived of this book really in the early 90s, uh, early to middle 90s. Um, it was a period in which there just seemed to be a, a prevailing mood of skepticism um, about a lot of things which had been regarded as fairly settled matters in the academy not the least of which was that the Bible had at least something to say about the past. Uh, people may have disagreed about how exactly to get at it. But by and large, um, it was believed that at least many books in the Bible uh, intended to say things about the past and succeeded in doing so in some way. Um, but in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a real skeptical tide that began to wash in um, and I was deeply unconvinced about its intellectual coherence, and that got me going on the, the, the questions that lie at the heart of that book. And then having spoken to Tremper and Phil about it, we agreed that between the three of us, we could probably make a pretty good job at uh, writing a book that um, took many of these traditional views about historicity and so on seriously, but was also very sensitive to the literary texture and shape of the, of the text. Mm -hmm. Because to date, uh, before that time, it seemed as if a lot of the evidence that was um, considered was more archaeological or historical and specifically extra-biblical, and where the literature of the Bible was discounted as being um, uh, you know, an authentic or reliable representation of the historical record. Is that right? Is, have I gotten that right? Yes, I mean, up until the last several decades, it was always understood that disciplines like archaeology could tell you quite a lot of useful things, but that, that evidence had to be interpreted within the frame of a narrative. Mm 
that you you couldn't do without as your primary set of markers what people from the past actually had to say about their own past. And what changed really in the 80s and 90s was a tendency to dismiss the testimony of the past, the written testimony of the past, and to believe that somehow you could get a more objective read on ancient history by ignoring that testimony and simply working with archaeological remains and so on. Um, I think this is wrong-headed. I don't think people actually do that, even if they say they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, we um, we really attempted in our book and other things that we've written to uh, really to raise some pretty important questions about that approach to things. Mm-hmm. Um, big, it's divided into the book was divided into two parts. You have a rather lengthy methodological section, and then you actually uh, attempt to write. Uh, a history or reconstruct a history based on, uh, you know, your weighing of both kinds of both the biblical story and uh, what's known uh, from extra biblical evidence and whatnot. Um, can you talk a little bit about the method that you uh, you and your co-authors use to approach the Bible? Because it seems evident that that is really continues to be at play in your work now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we regard the second part of that book as actually less important than the first in a way. The, the second is a fairly um, traditional blending of uh, text and artifactual data and so on. And it's important to show that that can be done and that we can make account for all of the evidence. But really, the importance of the book, I think, lies in the first part where we try to get into questions, very basic questions like, how do we know anything at all? How do we know about the past in particular? How do we know about Israel's past within that nest of of issues? Um, And so we're really trying to rehabilitate uh, the testimony of ancient texts as the main way in, in which we know about the past. In order to do that, we've had to take on a whole tradition of skepticism stemming from people like David Hume all the way down to the present, from the Enlightenment down to now, which I think is bankrupt but does not apparently visibly appear to be so to many modern uh, scholars. Mm. And so who are, who are some influences that you would cite uh, that helped you to formulate that methodology and approach? Um, Well, one of the books I found really helpful was a a book by an Australian philosopher named Tony Cody, who wrote a a book from a philosophical point of view simply entitled Testimony. Um, I came across this book quite a bit after I had developed an interest and had developed some hunches about these things. Uh, But because he wasn't really writing about religion as such, it was a very helpful book. Um, He tries to show how in human knowing more generally in lots of spheres that testimony is fundamental to our knowing. Um, So that was a very helpful book uh, in setting the larger context because really um, that part of the biblical history of Israel is not about the history of Israel only or even mainly. It's really about much bigger uh, human issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to spend a little time talking about your 2013 book, 
Convenient Myths, The Axial Age, Dark Green Religion, and The World That Never Was. Uh, since your latest book, in some ways, is part two of that larger project. Is that right? Uh, it is right, and it, it is correct in a very precise way, and that is that the two books used to be one book. Oh, <laughs> But when I got to the end of the writing process, I came to the conclusion that the one book was too big mm-hmm. and indeed that it would be better and more effective to separate them. So the second one constantly refers back to the first, but I feel it was a good decision to split the first one off from the second nonetheless. And in that book, you're mainly refuting um, some ideas that you think are profoundly mistaken about um, this uh uh, period that people refer to as the axial age. Is that right? Um, yes, it is. Uh, I mean, um, again, uh, historically, within certainly within the Judeo-Christian Western environment, uh, if you were to ask people of previous generations what is the turning point of history, they would have probably said something like the incarnation or the resurrection of Christ or some such thing. Um, Of course, as we move into a post-Christian kind of Western world, there are other ideas competing uh, with that idea for truthfulness. And one of the influential ones is this notion of the axial age, which tries to argue that really the turning point in human history is is quite a bit earlier than that, around about the 6th century BC. Okay. Can you you talk more about how – who are the scholars who define this and – and look at the who, who try to examine and unpack this uh, notion of an axial age. Where does the where does the concept come from? Um, well, the concept was around a little earlier than the person who who really put it on the map. The person who put it on the map was a German existentialist philosopher named Karl Jaspers, who was writing just after the Second World War. Um, he was convinced from his own experience that the whole horrific nature of the Nazi regime and, and that whole period of barbarism and warfare really came down to um, came down to a problem with finding common points of origin that we could all rally around as human beings. So he really thought that world peace and progress could be enhanced if we could make somehow the turning point of history not a specific one to do with Christian religion or whatever, but a more general one. And he hits on this idea of the axial age as a way of um, grounding major religions and philosophies in one place and trying to show um, points of common origin. Okay, and does this dovetail with uh, the emergence of evolutionary theory? Is there a connection there between a human anthropology and the origin of religion in general? Um, not really. Oh, it's not got really. Most, well, in, this, in the general sense that evolution, of course, t- tends to think of ever higher points of achievement, as it were, along the evolutionary line is rising. I mean, in, in a sense, it's about the evolution of society. Yes, I mean, that would be true. He thinks that around about the 6th century or just afterwards, all over the world, people are turning their back on more primitive forms of religion and they're entering into a new enlightened uh, era. They're asking bigger questions. Religion is becoming more ethical. And that what all of the major religions and philosophies have in common is turning their back on old religion and setting off on this new trajectory. 
Mm-hmm. And that's and that's the ground for all of the major religions. Yes, in a way, but of course, in his model, Christianity and Islam come much later. So in a way, they're derivative and secondary. What he mainly has in mind is Greek philosophy, Hinduism, Buddhism, Chinese religion, including Confucianism, and Judaism, of course. So it's it's not an entirely pluralistic vision in the sense of embracing everybody. He really sees Christianity and Islam as more derivative of Judaism. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, what's the matter with this view, um, at least as um, as the, this thinker um, has explained it? Um, the problem with it is um, not that all sorts of interesting things are happening in the sixth century BC. That's certainly true. The problem is, that in order to achieve his agenda. He needs to somehow create a unity across these these various spectrums and find common points, I mean crucial common points, not just trivial ones. And I simply think in the process he distorts the reality. I don't, I don't believe for a moment there is one such thing as the axial age, if by that we mean a, a kind of common fountainhead for you know all human thought coming afterwards, which is basically what he's arguing. Um, so he and others who have followed him in this tend to be terribly simplistic and reductionistic, I think, and they reduce a, a great complexity to um, to something that's rather indefensible historically. It's a kind of romantic retrojection mm-hmm. in pursuit of what is arguably a romantic futurist vision. So why does the this notion, so you know, continue to uh, spin out? Uh, some adherents and and people who continue to write about it. Do you, do you have an idea um, about that? Well, because the vision is very attractive. In a, in a fractured, violent world, if you believe in religion at all, which, of course, many people don't, I guess, now, but if you do, you would sure like it to be religion that helps you in flourishing, doesn't lead to violence and war and so on. And um, in a world in which the Judeo-Christian tradition is now frequently blamed for what's wrong with the world in terms of violence and and so on, finding an alternative vision is very attractive. So it fits very much the modern post-Christian Western pluralist agenda. Um, that's why it's attractive, and that's why popularizers of this idea, like Karen Armstrong, um, who mainly talks about compassion as the thing that binds all these things together. Mm-hmm. She's, just, she's just incredibly popular, mm-hmm. uh, uh, very, very popular, uh, and yet I find her thinking and writing to be incredibly superficial. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how she engages with that topic? Um, well, I mean, she, she takes the Jasper's idea and she says, well, what is it really at the core that binds us all together? in this axial kind of movement forward. And she identifies compassion as the thing that binds all of these different religions and philosophies together. Um, and, you know, who can argue with compassion? Compassion is a good thing, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, in the process, she tends to say rather ridiculous things about actual religious traditions, both now and back in back in the past. Okay. So it's... So in... Examining her viewpoint, your uh, what kind of evidence do you marshal? Um, you know, to uh, or is it just a deeper examination of the the history and the literature of these different uh, religious traditions? Is that 
the way that we engage with these ideas? Yes, I mean, I, I think you have to go back and try and describe accurately the nature of these religious and philosophical traditions from the beginning until now. Mm. And um, you have to try and show that the argumentation is, is really uh, rather flimsily based in the evidence. Mm. Um, I should say the second part of the title of that book, Dark Green Religion, <clears throat> is also addressing a different kind of romantic myth about the past, which which actually says, well, yes, there may well have been an axial age, but, but if there was one, it was a bad thing. The real point of common, the real point of commonality in, 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 our, in our human condition lies much further back when we were all hunter-gatherers and much happier and egalitarian and pluralist than we are now. So there are two strands to this. Um, the axial age people tend to think the axial age is the point we should return to the dark green religionists think the axial age is a big part of the problem. With civilization came came trouble, mm. essentially. Mm -hmm. Okay. I do want to talk more about dark green religion, but before we uh, get to that, um, I wanted to ask about one influential scholar who um, has recently published about the axial age, and that's uh, Robert Bella. Um, he's somebody who has... Um, is sort of well-known uh, within uh, religious studies, especially for his book, Habits of the Heart. He was a professor of sociology at Berkeley, and uh, before he died recently, um, he published Religion in Human Evolution from the Paleolithic to the Axial Age. And he's, his work has been praised from by the likes of Charles Taylor and Jürgen Habermas, and I'm wondering, how what is his iteration of this concept, and how did you engage with that in your in your uh, previous book? Well, I mean, his engagement with it obviously is at a much, much higher level than people like Karen Armstrong, for sure. Mm -hmm. And and yet, having read his work and interacted with it, and I do interact with this in, in Convenient Myths, I, I must say I find his articulation of the axial age to be puzzling and, and rather self-contradictory and not very well grounded in the evidence. So... His seriousness is not in question, but I, 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 do, I do find his case for such a thing as the axial age unconvincing. And indeed, I'm not entirely sure how convincing he found it because he qualifies it to such an extent that you wonder by the end of reading his work uh, what it is he's really asserting about it. Mm. So what was he trying to do with the concept? Was he trying to elaborate on what uh, others had done with the concept, and maybe he was trying to do something different with the book as a whole. I'm um, no, he was trying to elaborate. He was trying to bring some precision with it through bringing in other scholars and and uh, you know other categories that might help us in our thinking about this. Um, and of course, it's impossible in this brief interview to get into the detail of that. But mm -hmm. um, as I say, I do engage with them in the book insofar as space allows, and I, I simply don't think he does help to clarify it or make it a better thesis than, than it is. And I'm not alone in that. Some very significant people have criticized this idea as, as a kind of romantic retrojection. I'm certainly not alone in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, so let's talk about dark green religion. Who are some of its, um, uh, you know, the theorists who put put this forward, and how does it? Um, uh, You've mentioned a little bit about how it it is also a romantic myth um, about the past, but 
who are some of the people who write about this and who've been influential in putting forward the idea? Yeah, that's a very interesting and difficult question to answer because when we talk about dark green religion, we're talking about a huge, diverse, sprawling entity, as it were, um, which some people would argue is the default religion of the world's elites at the moment. Mm. But when you get to authors writing about it, you find that they're writing about it in different contexts from different points of view. So, for example, Thomas Berry would qualify as somebody... I think, who is coming at things from this point of view. Uh, in Canada, David Suzuki, I don't know if he's as well-known in the States, but oh, he's, yeah. lo- mm-hmm. he's local here. He would certainly be someone influential in terms of media who's, who's into this. But, I mean, you then have a spectrum of writers through to people like Derek Jensen, um, who um, is, is taking a pretty radical political stance in relation to these ideas, and arguing that we ought to actively participate in the fall of civilization because civilization is unsustainable, and the sooner it collapses, the better. Um, now, David Suzuki certainly would not take that activist political view, um, but what unites all of them is really a, a harking back to a much earlier phase of human existence, pre-civilizational as the place from which we must draw our inspiration for understanding ourselves in the present moment. Mm. Um, so it seems like one of the main preoccupations of, of uh, both of these um, camps or schools is uh, with violence. And uh, also I should tie it together with which you mentioned in seriously dangerous religion is the connection to the new atheists and that the equation of uh, serious religious belief with um, advocates of violence and uh, the perpetuation of violence. Um, is that in some ways the central thing that all of them are responding to? And do you put these three um, groups of thinkers together? Um, yes and no. Yes, in terms of their critique of Judeo-Christian monotheism, yes, they're, they're all rather against that for various reasons. But the new atheists, of course, are really not looking back for their inspiration. So that marks them out. All the other people think that at least good religion is a good thing. Um, so they're not really innately anti-religious. But the new atheists, what really unites them is that they're pretty hostile to religion as such. And it really doesn't matter which form it comes in. Um, so they're a, a forward-looking kind of group. The other two groups are looking to the past for their inspiration before things got as bad as they are now, as it were. Mm-hmm. But so I'd say that in some ways the new atheists are not romantics then in that precise sense of the term. Mm-hmm. Of course, many of the new atheists are appalled by the, uh, you know, the, the fighting and the violence that they, we see you know, over the past um, you know, decade, um, and this is a lot of what they're responding to in their writing is um, is religiously motivated violence. Is that is that correct? It, it is correct, but I mean, I must say, I find it rather baffling from one point of view. I mean, of course, violence of any kind is a terrible thing, and religiously inflamed or generated violence is, of course, a terrible thing. But there are two things to be said about this. First of all. 
violence is not restricted to overtly religious people. I mean, the 20th century was an incredibly violent century, but I think that many of those who were perpetrating the worst of that and the most extensive versions of it were really not religious in a traditional sense at all. Stalin and Mao, just to name two examples. Mm-hmm. When we go back in, in history, um, we discover that you know violence has been with us um, ever since there have been human beings, and no doubt before, um, if the behavior of chimpanzees is anything to go by. So I, I just, of, of course, I'm as appalled as anyone else is by religiously inspired violence. But I do think these writers are incredibly simplistic and reductionistic in the way they approach this question. In, in not making uh, fair comparisons with other motives for violence. And indeed, in some cases, saying, well, you know, before civilization, for example, we, you know, people weren't violent, they were peaceable, which flatly is contradicted by the evidence, again. If you mm-hmm. actually go back and you look at the, the historical record right back to the Paleolithic period, mm-hmm. um, you don't find that hunter-gatherers were, were, any less, were any more inclined to peaceableness, generally speaking, than the rest of us or at least we're not universally and globally, so I'm not saying that there were not people who were more peaceable than others, but then mm-hmm. there are people nowadays who are more peaceable than others as well. Mm-hmm. So turning to uh, your latest book, what is it that you wanted to evoke with the title, Seriously Dangerous Religion? It's a very provocative title. Uh, yes, deliberately so. I'm trying to get people's attention on this question of is religion dangerous or or at least is at least a certain kind of uh, biblical Jewish Christian religion dangerous? That is what unites those three groups we've just been talking about. Um, so the Axial Age people would certainly think that the Christian uh, faith and, and Islam are dangerous. Uh, the um, the dark green people certainly are, are predominantly thinking of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And the new atheists have their interests more or less divided pretty equally between the Judeo-Christian and the Islamic one. So what many of them appear to believe is that that monotheism in particular is innately dangerous. And the question I set myself really in that book was to ask the question, well, is that true? Is that really the case? Um, and if it is in any sense true that biblical religion is dangerous, in what sense is it dangerous? Mm-hmm. Okay. I hope we can talk about that a little later. Um, so one of the things I was really surprised to find was how much comparative religion actually uh, factors into the book. Um, and it really serves to throw into relief a lot of um, the biblical perspective that, uh, that you provide. Can you talk a little bit about what you intend, like how these, um, how you intended to use this mixture of of sources to to draw out what is distinctive in the Bible? Yes, um, although in all honesty, it is not just about what's distinctive in the Bible. I mean, a large part of the book is what I would call fairly hands-off, cool communication, in the sense that I'm simply trying to describe as accurately as I can what different philosophies and religions say about really important big human questions. Ah, mm -hmm. Uh, Because I'm so weary of 
the nonsense <laughs> that you come across in high school curricula, on the media, and indeed in the work of people like the New Atheists on, on these kinds of issues. So what I do in each chapter is I try to describe to the best that I can what I think biblical faith has to say about a given question. And then I will selectively choose other philosophical religious traditions which may be similar or may not be to, to the biblical uh, view. And by comparing and contrasting, I hope to let people see the extent to which somebody like Karen Armstrong is incredibly wrong in what she says about these religious traditions. Okay. You, the, your chapters, uh, actually, each one um, asks a question um, from what is the world, who is God, who are men and women, why do evil and suffering mark the world? Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you came up, and it continues, there are um, perhaps a dozen questions here. How did you come up with the list? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, one answer is I can't quite remember how I came up with the list, but <laughs> I, think, I think what I did was I, I sat down and I asked myself, okay, what are, say, the 10 big questions or 10 big questions that philosophers and religionists have typically tried to answer, right? So, you know, what would you be disappointed not to find <laughs> if you went and, and with your questions? And, and you typically find, actually, that all of these great religious traditions and philosophies um, have indeed tried to answer questions like, what is a human being? What is the good society? What are we to hope for? And they have their own distinctive answers to these. So the core of the book is organized around these 10 questions that, that I think religions and philosophies have always tried to, to answer. The, the other chapters are, first of all, introduction, of course, and then the last three chapters are somewhat different in style, and we can talk about those perhaps later. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I wondered if we could uh, burrow into uh, one of these uh, questions, and I think because it's such a persistent one, uh, the question, what am I to do about evil and suffering, which is uh, chapter six, yeah. uh, which you entitled uh, On Living in a Blighted World. Uh, can you talk a little bit about where you start in that chapter and what is the arc of your argument there? And and uh, how do you use the um, – every chapter in this section is sort of rooted in Genesis but that then throws a long arc uh, across the biblical literature. And it's surprising to find – a great deal of continuity, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this question of, of evil um, uh, for a bit. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, this is an area that's interested me for quite a while um, because I think from a very young age, I myself was not terribly convinced by a number of the answers I was being given on this topic. And so I thought about it quite a lot. And of course, the experience of a lifetime now has also fed into that. And so um, in that chapter, I'm trying to really try to understand what the Old Testament has to say about this topic and which categories we've imposed on it and which questions we've asked that perhaps are not even the best questions. So, for example, is everything that causes suffering in the world evil? That's a really good question that I don't find oftentimes in church is really asked. 
Um, but I do think the Bible has something to say about that, interestingly enough. And I don't think the Bible does regard everything that we find unpleasant, for example, as evil. And so this, this leads me to question categories like natural evil, which is a one that, at least in some of our Christian traditions, we would be pretty familiar with. And I, uh, I have some real qualms about that. And how you parse this out makes a big difference to the question, what should I do about evil, which is the chapter that follows on mm. after. Mm-hmm. So what, what is the... Uh What's your starting point for the Bible? I believe it's uh, it's Genesis three, and what's what's that story, and how do you uh, use that as a bridge to uh, later uh, biblical writing? Well, I certainly think Genesis three is about the entrance of evil into our human experience. Um, the thing that I would question is whether God's good creation does not already involve uh, suffering and so on. I think that's the important issue at stake there. So. I mean, Genesis 3 is certainly about, is a very persuasive and illuminating story about the nature of temptation and how we get implicated in, in uh, moral evil and so on. But I do think it's about moral evil. I don't think it's really, in the first instance, about natural evil, although moral evil inevitably has effects on the ecosystem as well as upon our human society. Mm-hmm. And in, in this chapter, you actually t- you talk a good bit about um, uh, mistaken notion about Eden and mm-hmm. our location to Eden. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. This comes down to what we think the genre of Genesis 1 and 2 are and, and what we think they're describing. There has been a tendency to think of the Garden, Eden, Garden of Eden as a place within creation. That's a fairly strong tradition within uh, Christian faith. Um, I, I doubt that that's really what Genesis 2 wants to do. I think Genesis 2 is actually um, a story about the whole world portrayed as a garden. So the garden is a metaphor, I think, for the whole created order. And Genesis 2 retells the story of creation from a different point of view and with different questions up at the front than in Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. And that... that uh, led you to uh, to contextualize Eden in a different in a different way and to make some observations about uh, its relationship to uh, to the geography of of the of the this uh, these opening chapters of Genesis. Well, indeed, I mean, if you think that it is a matter for for describing true things about the world and so on you may not be as inclined to launch an expedition to go to Mesopotamia to find it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, That may not be the point. I think we're really in the world of what I would call cosmic geography in Genesis 2, where the descriptions are not meant to be understood as kind of the kind of modern descriptions that our maps may give us. They're much more um, a map, a sort of metaphysical map, if you like, than a physical map. Mm -hmm. yeah. In the second half of the chapter, you you then uh, talk about Plotinus, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam and their ways of addressing the question of evil. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in, that you engaged with those traditions and and how the biblical narrative offers something different? Uh, sure. I mean, the first thing I want to say is I hope I engage at all times with these traditions respectfully. And I hope I do so accurately. I would be very, very disappointed if 
somebody who's a practicing Muslim could come up to me and say something like, you've greatly misrepresented my religion. So I'm hoping to have done both those things, respectful and accurate. But uh, at the end of the day, and I would hope that a Muslim or whatever might agree with me on this, at the end of the day, I think uh, biblical faith takes a very different view of God's relationship to the world and therefore evil and, and what's where it comes from and what's to be done about it. And you see this very clearly in Plotinus. Um, not all of your listeners may know who Plotinus is, so we're talking about a Neoplatonist, early Neoplatonist thinker who's very much influenced by Stoicism. And of course, um, his view of, of evil is really that we should just try to escape from it as quickly and as completely as we can, as it were. And uh, we do so by escaping society and by asceticism and, and so on, uh, not by engaging it and certainly not trying to eradicate it or ameliorate it or remove it. That's very different, I think, from biblical notions of compassion and what compassion implies. And I would also say, by the way, on that point, that whereas somebody like Karen Armstrong would say, well, we share with Buddhism a commitment to compassion, it's very clear to me that when you analyze the concept of compassion in both religions, you're actually talking about rather different things. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, yes, I mean, I think Buddhism is rather close to um, Plotinus in this area, that compassion in the sense of a general feeling of benevolence and well-being towards the whole of creation is really what Buddhism is about. But it's part of the process by which we detach ourselves and our emotions from the world, the present physical, uh, material, societal world, and launch ourselves off on the path of liberation. So it's not what I would call active compassion in the sense of changing society or confronting wickedness and so on. Um, that's not really the point in Buddhism. The point is individually to try and transcend it and to get beyond it and ultimately to escape from it. Mm-hmm. And and the uh, the Christian counterpoint, or it's not the Christian counterpoint. Of course, we're talking about um, the Old Testament and specifically Genesis. But what is the the view? Um, is there continuity between the view in Genesis and later biblical literature, such as the Christian uh, scriptures? Do you do you point to that as well? Or I do eventually, uh, Garrett. The thing is, um, I think that. The Old Testament has, has so often been read um, badly, or at least not very well, mm-hmm. uh, by Christians. And so part of the tactic of the book was to try to get Christian readers to set aside some of their own presuppositions to begin with, just to see whether we can read the text together and and get a clear idea of what the Old Testament has to say. But in um, chapter 11 or 12, I can't remember, it must be chapter 12, I think, um, I do try to follow the biblical story, the Old Testament story, through theme by theme all the way through the New Testament. Mm. So in answer to your question, I think that the Old Testament is very concerned about how we live our lives here and now and is not very concerned about what comes next. The New Testament comes along and says, well, you know, there's a lot more to be said about what comes next, but it doesn't thereby invite us to abandon our duty to compassion and and all the rest of that, it's still embodied. How we live here is still crucial. And so there is this idea, of course, of a a phase of existence yet to come, but it doesn't become a Neoplatonist 
you know, endeavor whereby our purpose is to escape and to leave the world to its own devices. The early Christians understood this, and that's why the early Christians stayed behind in such large numbers to nurse people during the great plagues of the Roman Empire, where all the Stoics basically ran off. Hmm. I wonder if you'd go back to talk about some of the common misunderstandings that Christians have about the Old Testament. Can you mention a few? Well, I mean, the main one is that people are very often not sure whether the Old Testament's part of the Bible or not. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, oh dear. I, I mean, of course, it's true that the Bible they buy has the Old Testament in it. But uh-huh. think of how often in church now you don't hear an Old Testament reading. You you hardly ever hear an Old Testament text being the main focus of a sermon. Many Christians I meet have never or only intermittently read. The Old Testament, when they do, they're dipping in, as it were, a bit like the toe in the water. They're not really regarding it as Scripture in the same way as the New Testament. And I find that to be an impossible position, given what Jesus himself tells us about the Old Testament. Um, So that's, that's the biggest problem, probably, in church. And then there are all sorts of um, other problems where... Maybe people do take it seriously as, as, as Scripture in a more meaningful way, but they tend to do things like say, well, the Old Testament's all about law and, and the Gospel's all about grace, or Old Testament ethics really have nothing to do with us. We're, we're Gospel people. You know, these huge dichotomies, which I think arise really more out of a habit of thinking than because people are actually reading their Bibles. Mm. because they're really not defensible dichotomies, and yet they're very common ones in my experience. Mm -hmm. So what is something that would complicate that notion? Like, uh, Can you give uh, an example of a passage in the Old Testament that really complicates this notion that it's simply a tension between uh, law and grace? What is something that would uh, challenge that notion? Well, I mean, the most obvious thing that would challenge it would be one of the most central stories in the whole Bible, which is the story of the Exodus, of course. I mean, uh, it's interesting, the order of events in the book of Exodus, isn't it? God saves them from Egypt, then he gives them a law. He doesn't go and say, here's a law, see how you get on with keeping that, and if you do it really, really well, I'll come and rescue you from Egypt. Uh, Now, given that the Exodus is the paradigmatic, story, salvation story of the whole Bible, really, is the one on which all the other ones are then based. Uh, That would be a very good example. Or consider on the ethics side, you know, this idea that, you know, New Testament ethics are superior to and and greatly different from Old Testament ethics. So people would say, well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus appeals to the heart. He doesn't just appeal to actions. And yet, if you read Job's defense of his integrity in Job chapter 31, you will see him say things like, to God, like, um, you know, I have integrity because I have never looked lustfully at a girl. (laughs) So the idea that um, the the Old Testament people of God knew nothing about God's demands on their internal motivations and so on, I think Mm -hmm. is self-evidently mistaken. Mm -hmm. But you'll hear that kind of thing nonetheless said by people, Christian leaders, who really ought to know better. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, well, it's hard to do justice to a 500-page book, and actually and a lot of these chapters could warrant an hour-long discussion in and of themselves as you're asking some of these big questions uh, about theology and, and morals um, and worldview. 
Um, but I wonder if we might jump uh, to the end and uh, get at least a partial answer to your question uh, that you pose. Is it dangerous? Sure. Uh, that lets me talk about the final two chapters, actually, if I may. Uh, yes, so, please. So, as I say, most of the book is, is meant to be fairly descriptive. It's just trying to say, how are things? What does biblical faith actually say? over against somebody like Richard Dawkins, who just proof texts endlessly to try and create the monster he wants to attack. So what, what's, what it's actually saying, and what are other religions and philosophies saying by way of contrast and comparison and so on? But of course, in the end of the day, the point of that whole exercise is to circle back to two questions. First of all, is this biblical story true? Because that is greatly disputed. Mm. And secondly, is it dangerous, which is... I mean, if it's not true in a way, the problem is less in terms of the danger, as it were, or at least if people come to believe it's not true. So I spend a fair bit of time, and the final two chapters are more argumentative, therefore, because now I'm, now I'm arguing a case. I'm not just describing. So I, I certainly uh, say in chapter uh, 13, yes, I believe this story is true, and here's why. And that leads me on to the, the question, is it dangerous and essentially, to summarize that chapter, what I say is, yes, it's very, very dangerous, but not in the ways that people actually claim it to be. And I actually am very glad it's dangerous in the ways I think it actually is. How is it dangerous? Uh, it's dangerous because its vision of the world is one uh, that threatens power, that threatens those who are wealthy over against the poor. Uh, the vision of the world gives hope to the hopeless and the oppressed and so on. Uh, it makes demands of us in terms of how we treat other human beings whom we are obliged to regard as image bearers. Um, these are just a few of the ways in which it's really, really dangerous has always been recognized as such by totalitarian power, for example, whether in the Bible or in more recent times. Mm -hmm. It is the very foundation of things that our culture still holds to be important, like human rights, for example, but the culture's forgotten where these things came from. Um, so it's very dangerous, but I think it's a fantastic thing that it is so, given the sort of world we live in. Excellent. Well, uh, Ian, I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, at the New Books Network, we end with a traditional question, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Uh, well, thank you for asking. Um, let me first tell you, I've just published a book of my own essays over the last uh, two or three decades with Regent College Publishing called Against the Grain. Um, uh, then I have another book that's in press at the moment with SPCK in London, called Discovering Genesis. So it's another book that touches on Genesis, but more from the point of view of how people have read Genesis through the ages. So if a reader were to read both Seriously Dangerous Religion and this new book, they would see quite a bit of overlap, of course, because I'm not making it up as I go along, as it were. Mm. Uh, I have a limited number of things to, to say. But what's very distinctive about this new book is really it's trying to introduce people both to interpretive issues but also to the question of how people through the ages have engaged with the interpretation. And then the project I'm currently working on is is going to, it's time to coincide with the 500-year, um, what's it wouldn't be called an anniversary, but you, but you know what I mean, of the nailing of Luther's 95 theses to the ah. door of the church in Wittenberg. 
And uh, this is going to be a book about Protestant biblical interpretation and whether it's still viable in the 21st century. Um, it seems to me that all around us we have Protestant Christians in some degree of doubt or even crisis about the viability of, of the way in which Protestants think of the Bible and how to interpret it. And it comes out in all sorts of presenting ways, like current arguments about what the Bible really says about sexual ethics, for example, or, or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or creation and evolution, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm interested in, in, in that big question, really, behind all the small ones. So I'm going to try and write a very ambitious book um, that is, is really historically focused in the sense that it will have a historical frame of reference from the early church uh, all the way through, but it will also be thematic in the sense that it will take on lots of issues about Protestant biblical interpretation and, and try to see, uh, are they viable as stated? Are they viable in this form or that? Um, what does it look like now? Is it simply a case of being Luther now, or is it a case of being Luther plus or Luther minus now? Hmm. These are these are the questions I'll be trying to ask. Well, that certainly sounds like an ambitious project. It's terribly ambitious. I'm, I'm quailing at the very prospect of it. But, <laughs> Excellent. But somebody, has to, somebody has to try and do these things, so I'll give it my best shot. Great. Well, I look forward to perhaps having you on a future show. Thank you for being on today's show. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I've been delighted to be on, and I hope we will talk again at some point in the future. Very good. Take care. Thank you. That concludes today's conversation with Ian Proven, professor of biblical studies at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I hope you've enjoyed today's program, and will join us again on a, for a future program on New Books in Biblical Studies. Thank you, and take care. Thank you.